This is the first time presented by Trap Brewing Company. I remember one moment um, that still gives me goosebumps up to up to today is that Armand came in. So on Sundays it was just uh, Michel and myself. Armand was uh, was enjoying his time at uh, at the coast. Um, um, on a certain Sunday, without us knowing, he comes in. He says, like, I still have to fetch something at the office. Uh, I will be gone very quickly. So after two minutes, he was uh, back downstairs. And while going out of the front door, he looks back and he, he says to us, like, I really love uh, what I'm seeing. And he's gone. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Thirst Time. The show that takes a deep dive into the careers and journeys of some of the most creative minds in the craft beer industry today. Today, we have a pretty special one. Uh, I got to sit down with Werner von Orbegen. I hope I got that right, from Driefontaine. Um, for a special conversation, really. I mean, anyone that knows that brewery knows the history, knows the character, knows the spirit. You know, there's so much to it, um, and it was a real honor to get that to sit down and and hear more about the story. Uh, there was some really emotional bits in this, actually. Um, as some of you know, Aman, uh, who was who was Drefontaine for a while, passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but he handed the keys over to Werner and uh, Mikel, who's the brewer there, in a pretty amazing fashion. Yeah, so we get into all of that anyway. So I won't I won't spoil it. Uh, a little bit of a different one. This was done usually on Zoom. I have video link as well, but it was purely audio. So it was a little bit more uh, ask a question and listen, which I was very happy with. Um, but also the uh, the line wasn't great. So apologies for that. But there's so much in this that I hope will keep you listening, even though the, the signal wasn't the best. Um, yeah, let's get into it. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents the Thirst Time, and this is our interview with Werner von Orbingen. And we start with that all-important question, what was that first beer for him? Um, well, actually, it was, it was uh, my first as well, um, uh, which happened to be at Riefontaine, but that was long before I started to work uh, at Riefontaine. Um, and it was the first time I actually uh, met uh, Armand as well, uh, our, uh, our, let's say, father, uh, father uh, familias. Um, uh, he, uh, uh, it was actually at a restaurant that I ordered my first goose. You also have to know that in my youth, I actually skipped the whole phase of going out and doing cheap <laughs> lagers from, uh, <laughs> from plastic cups. Amazing. For the very simple reason that my parents, they had a, a small mom and pop grocery store and uh, Saturdays and Sundays were like working days. So um, I didn't go out a lot, um, uh, only uh, years later during uh, my university years. Uh, so the very first decent beer that I drank uh, was uh, was an Otto Goose uh, on the terrace of Trifontaine. Uh, that was the uh, end of the 90s. And wow. uh, Armand, Armand stopped by and he asked me, are you drinking that Goose? And apparently back in those days, it was not that common that a, a youngster like me, a youngster, I was, uh, I was almost 20, uh, that a youngster like me would would drink uh, a goose. So, and he started to talk about what it actually was. 
Uh, and that is, I think, where the seed for my appreciation of craft beer uh, actually started. Uh, and especially for Lambic and, uh, and Goose generally, and especially Driefontein in particular. And that was not only the beer, but also the person, uh, the person of Armand uh, um, and the way he talked about uh, Lambic and Goose with so much passion, with so much uh, um, uh, experience and knowledge about, uh, about what he saw as the future for, uh, for Lambic. Um, yeah, so that was uh, more than 20 years ago already. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I know we haven't got video on this call, so we're just doing audio, but I, I, I'm smiling ear to ear just hearing that because how insane it is to think that that little moment, you know, however many years later you would be leading the charge for Drifontaine is kind of incredible. Um, it's like a dream coming true. Yeah. Um, and and one that I never uh, planned or or uh, organized for. Um, it was just a series of uh, of events happening um, uh, for which I am uh, not only very grateful but uh, very happy for as well. Oh, it's um, It's absolutely so, amazing. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, while while talking about it, it's also a moment of reflection, of course. Um, and and I can I can maybe elaborate a bit on that. Uh, that was in 2013. So um, when I drank my first goose a few years later, I did my uh, my thesis on uh, the uh, the hardships of uh, small uh, craft lambic breweries compared to the commercial ones and the industrial ones from a very economic and financial perspective because that was my uh, that was my master's uh, uh, degree uh, about um and Armand was the uh, uh, the only brewer that was so open about his business uh, the business side then the financial side as well um and so at the age of 23 when I uh, when I finished studies the, he he always asked me like look um, whatever you you learn uh, from your thesis I also uh, would appreciate that you explain to me what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. Um, so that was the next phase in getting to know Armand better. Um, that was 2002. Um, afterwards, I became a, uh, let's say, regular customer, uh, mm -hmm. really from the consumer side. Um, I, I bought a lot of Trifontaine uh, uh, together with Cantillon and then later at Ulquin as well to put in my cellar. Uh, and of course, the Cam as well um, uh, to put in my cellar and to age these bottles. Um, meanwhile, I got to know uh, Michael, um, so, uh, also uh, my partner in, uh, in Trifontaine. Um, he started with, with Armand, worked with Armand in uh, 2010. Um, and all of a sudden in 2013, just your, let's say, uh, every day, Saturday, I go to Drifontaine to uh, buy uh, another two cases of uh, other goose to put in my cellar. And I see Armand in the back of uh, the small shop uh, next to the brewery in Beersel. And uh, a lot of people around the table, he sees me and he says, Werner, Werner, come over. I, want, I would like to show you something. And he starts to explain on how um, he would like to, um, uh, uh, let's say, centralize four different locations. So back in those days, uh, 2010, uh, Driefontaine was active on four different locations. So four locations with barrels, then a bottling line on one location, labeling line on the other location. So very uh, uh, 
very difficult to, to run operations actually as a lambic mm -hmm. brewer and, and blender. Um, so there was a plan on the table of a certain building that Armand was looking at uh, to, to centralize the four locations to that one. And he starts to talk about, yeah, we have this big dream to get everything together. Uh, the next coming months, we will talk to banks and so on and so forth. And I asked him like, look, Armand, do, do you already have like somewhere some uh, 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 financial data or, or a plan that you can present to a bank? Um, which he hasn't because Armand has never, uh, was never uh, too keen about the actual financial numbers. The only, <laughs> he always, he always told us like the, the only numbers that I care about are the number of liters in my, uh, in my barrels. That's amazing. Because that's, uh, that's where the uh, excise services are really strict about. Um, um, so I asked him like, or I proposed him like, look, if I can help, just give me a call. Um, I would love to, um, so that the Fontana can can really go uh, um, or, or continue to exist because 2009, uh, the thermostat incident didn't happen uh, that long ago uh, before uh, we, we started talking. Um, and a few months later, so that was, uh, I think, was somewhere in November 2013. He called me. He says, "Like Werner, things are getting serious. We would like you to have a uh, to have you with us around the table to talk about the future and and maybe that you could help us to to put some figures uh, on paper so that we can present it to the banks. And the rest is a bit history. <laughs> wow, man, there's so much there that I want to. I kind of want to get in get into. Um, Usually when I do these interviews, it's kind of like start in the past and move forward to the present. But with this, maybe we should start in the present and move forward from the past because the stuff that you've kind of just explained there, you know, I've been watching videos and things uh, and on our man and uh, him speaking and just the incredible trait and openness of which he saw your talent and Michael's talent uh, Mikhail's talent, sorry, um, to bring you on board of this thing that, you know, was his, his whole life, his whole life journey, just the kind of humility to be able to hand it to people that he could see maybe had talents in fields that he wasn't as skilled in or slash interested in. Um, that must be an incredible thing, you know, going from that younger kid drinking a drifont into to suddenly being sat around the table making business decisions for the future of it. Absolutely. Um, and and maybe, and that's only in hindsight, because the moment itself, uh, we, uh, being Michael and myself, were not aware of maybe the plan that, all, that Armand uh, already had in his head on that, uh, at that time or uh, at that moment. Um, and um, let me, let me add to that that um, so when we sat together, uh, Michel, who was already a partner uh, of Armand in uh, in 2013, um, Armand, every single meeting, he kept on asking like Werner, what's your plan? So the first, let's say, ten meetings, I, I told him like Armand, I just want to help. I I'm, I'm not think, I'm not even thinking about what's what's uh, after this. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, uh, Michael was uh, was hired to actually help Armand. He already had a new knee uh, back in those days because uh, 
his, his old knee was just worn out because of the hard work. He literally did everything himself in the cellars, bottling, labeling before uh, Michael joined, maybe sometimes with the help of some friends. Uh, but it was a, it was a hard life. Um, and also, the, and still up today, uh, Michael and myself, we are like a tandem. Uh, Michael is, is managing the operational side, so brewing, the blending, uh, bottling, labeling, and logistics. Uh, and I'm doing then the uh, administration and financial uh, part. Um, and um, as from the first moment that we had to draw figures and draw a plan, um, we always said like the most complex part of running, uh, let's say, a lambic brewing and blending business it's about the balance in the uh, in the barrel room. Uh, mm-hmm. We have to maintain that balance one year, two year, three year. And in our case, we also have barrels of four, five and six year old Lambic. That's a very complex thing to translate that from um, a plan of building up the barrel room to, okay, what, what is going to be the impact on the financial side? Mm-hmm. For that, the first thing that we did, uh, Michael and myself, we spent like, I don't know how, how many Sundays, I think, at least 20 Sundays together, sitting in uh, from the morning through the uh, the afternoon, we sat together to um, uh, to align on what we could do given the uh, the space restrictions of the, or the surface that we had at our um, uh, at our availability, um, and and yeah, that was something I I remember one moment um, that still give me goosebumps up to up to today is that Armand came in. So on Sundays, it was just uh, Michel and myself. Armand was uh, was enjoying his time at, uh, at the coast. Um, um, on a certain Sunday, without us knowing, he comes in. He says, like, I still have to fetch something at the office. Uh, I will be gone very quickly. So after two minutes, he was uh, back downstairs. And while going out of the front door, he looks back and he, he says to us, like, I really love uh, what I'm seeing. And he's gone. And Michel and myself, that's the first moment after, I think, eight months uh, since the first time we sat together. Uh, that was the fir- first moment that we realized together uh, that Armand maybe had uh, this plan all along wow. uh, of a future uh, future for Trifontaine. Um, afterwards, he often referred to, uh, to, uh, to Michel and myself as the sons he never got. Oh, man. So, yeah, uh, while while telling you this, this this I'm, I'm my whole body is full of goosebumps because um, yeah. that's how 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 he, Armand was not only uh, um, a man of 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 uh, uh, passion, but he was he's also his personality is a very open one. Yeah, um, the way he went about the team that was uh, that has always been a young team. Um, he never took decisions on, on on himself. He always involved people. So, and that still is the, uh, um, the DNA of of Drifontaine today. Um, so, yeah, he left us with a great uh, present. Yeah, and I guess you know the other side of it is that he he saw something in you guys that his life work could carry on in a direction that he thought was positive because yeah, it was getting me emotional just listening to that because so maybe, maybe, you know, for context here, um, I'm probably aware that everyone 
does know I'm on, but there might be some listeners who don't. So could you give a bit of history of just uh, Drew Fontaine and, and Aman as, as well, just so people can get scope of of the project and the the, the work that he put in um, into into carrying Lambic Beer forward? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I will give like the big headlines. So uh, uh, Drie Fontaine um, uh, started uh, a long time ago as a small bar. We're talking about the, uh, the end of the 1800s. Um, and it actually was more like a cafe, cafe or an inn uh, where people stopped by uh, to drink something and they had some barrels in the, in the basement. That was a, a generation long before Armand actually. Um, if we fast forward to uh, 1951, Armand was born in 1951. In 53, uh, Gaston de Belder and um, his spouse um, Raymonde, they took over uh, the cafe. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the previous owner uh, was voted to mayor and he didn't have time anymore to, uh, to actually run the cafe, so it was sold. Wow. Um, so uh, Gaston uh, was a uh, was living on a farm, but the farm got too small to support uh, two families. Uh, so they they moved out um, uh, from the, the nearby city, which was then yeah like a big municipality actually, uh, to Beersel. Uh, at that point, we're talking about 1953. There were more than uh, 14 blenders uh, in Beersel alone. Um, and um, so a few years later, in 1961, Armand is then 10 years old. They moved to the building that is currently hosting uh, the, the restaurant, the uh, Rifontaine. Um, and that's where they actually decide to, to broaden the, uh, the scope of service. And they, so not only, not only being a cafe, but also a restaurant. Um, the sellers, uh, Gaston de, he, uh, um, to say he dug out more cavos, more bottles. So, and that's where going into the 60s and the 70s, um, Trifontaine becomes a very flourishing restaurant. So people coming over from Brussels to Basel to actually eat a sandwich with the, uh, the famous uh, gas. Um, so the white cheese uh, spread or white cheese and Brussels cheese mix spread. Uh, in summertime, but also uh, 70s, 80s, even 90s, um, um, it was a family restaurant with a lot of uh, visitors from uh, from abroad, uh, Beersel, or from outside Beersel, um, and a very local uh, uh, local support as well. Um, uh, but at the same time, um, Lambic and Gus was going to the all-time low mid-90s. Um, so in the 80s, uh, Armand and his brother Hido took over the business from uh, their parents. Um, Armand uh, going more and more into Lambic as well. And mid-90s, um, after he got a reward uh, or kind of a trophy from uh, a small uh, uh, beer club, which is currently uh, Zitos. Mm-hmm. So the biggest uh, beer uh, club in, uh, in Belgium. Um, he got a trophy for uh, not stopping the whole, uh, the whole blending culture and tradition together with uh, Jean Hanses from uh, uh, Hanses uh, uh, nearby. And um, that's where he started to believe in a future for uh, Lambic and for Gus. Um, and even more so, end of the 90s, he decides to brew um, to actually start his own business uh, in 2001. Um, so that is where uh, the restaurant is left. 
brother, and uh, Armand continues uh, brewing and blending. Um, he uh, learned to brew himself together with Willem van Herrewegen. Um, so it was trial and error um, just to come to a, a recipe that is his own. Um, but he never uh, left the, the, the values that um, Gaston and Armand with him held so high for, uh, for, for brewing and blending a goose, um, which means it takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no additions in any way whatsoever. Um, we only use like uh, pure fruits, uh, for example. We don't add any enzymes on the on the brew kettles. We don't add any uh, uh, foam stabilizers um, while brewing. Everything is done uh, very slowly. We boil for five hours and so on and so forth. So Armand has set out his uh, his recipe that we still adhere to today. Amazing. Um, afterwards as well, uh, uh, one year on barrels is really 12 months because that's a huge discussion point in Lambic for the moment. Uh, some a lot of, uh, of, or quite some brewers, they think, or they they consider Lambic to be one year old mm-hmm. uh, if it reached a summer time or a summer, summer months. Uh, so actually six month old Lambic also could already be like one year old in the books of uh, some brewers. Mm-hmm. But we calculate really like one year is 12 months. And that is something that, let's say the stubbornness um, or the steadfast way of going about those values all come from Armand. Um, <laughs> When we, and that's that's also a bit uh, who Armand was. He never stopped dreaming. Um, yeah. I will also give two examples. So the initial building that we were looking at uh, while making, let's say, the first plan, um, was actually not uh, or structurally uh, not sound enough to put barrels. So we had to look for another one, and that's the current one, which was way too big in surface. Um, after after having uh, emptied everything so that we saw the, the, the plain surface, um, uh, Michel and Armand, they started to, to smile and to discuss. And they say, Armand was, was looking at Michel and says, like, maybe we should start drawing where we can put uh, all the barrels. Um, and uh, which is, uh, or which is more or less three and a half times what Armand had laying uh, uh, on the four locations. So we actually adopted our plan to start uh, expanding the uh, lambic volume on barrels. Wow. Um, that's a plan we started in 2015 uh, that we only uh, carried or that we only finished in 2019 because of the uh, what I explained to you, the, uh, the very uh, complex balance that you need to maintain in the barrel room. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a second example is the, uh, in 2017, while we're sitting at the table, um, Often Armand told us, like, look, guys, um, what is happening now? And all plans getting carried out, team that was a that was growing uh, with young people believing in a future for Alembic. He says, like, this is really the cherry uh, for me on the cake. Um, and then he, <laughs> while smiling, he added, but I made the cake. You're the, <laughs> the cherries on it, um, and and we were just we were just sitting together, the three of us, like well, with a glass of goose uh, in summer. So in summer it was uh, more quiet, uh, not anymore because in summer we're in full fruit season that mm-hmm. we harvest a lot of uh, ourselves. Um, but back in those days, we're talking about 2017. Summer was a bit more quiet, so we're sitting at the table. 
uh, pondering, uh, and that's something we asked uh, Armand, like Armand, what more cherries would you like to have uh, on top of the cake? And Armand actually, he literally uh, bumped his fist on the table and he said, we have to go back to our own back garden to, uh, uh, to get our cereals uh, from local farmers. Um, and then he stepped away because he knew that <laughs> he just dropped a little seed. <laughs> Literally a little some, seed, yeah, that Matt grew yeah, into, into Absolutely, yeah. And he, he, he already knew that something would be done with it, uh, with, the, with that idea. So, and that's the actual source or that's the actual first step in, in the development of our um, cereal collective. Mm -hmm. um, and that for Armand, um, up uh, or until the end of... Uh, of his life, he was always asking for how how is it with the farmers? Um, uh, how many uh, how many uh, uh, pounds or tons did you get from the fields this summer, and so on and so forth? So, mm -hmm. um, the whole realization of that project uh, started with a um, a very nice talk around the table with the three of us. It's amazing, man. So many incredible stories. Um, yeah, that was one that I wanted to kind of hone in on. I, I read it in an article about the, um, the the slamming the fist on the table and saying we need to source our own cereals. Um, you know, for me, these beers, they're such stories. They're such connection to place. Um, but again, to go back into kind of the, the childlike question and, and just to define some terms for people, what what is Lambic beer and what is a Gers? Um, So Lambic beer, um, there's, there's different uh, ways in which uh, Lambic beer can be determined. Um, and it already starts with the ingredients that are being used. So there's a huge part of, uh, or there is a considerable part of uh, raw wheat uh, in the mash. That's already one. Um, can go up from at least 32 and a half percent up to 60 percent of the, the the grain bill mm -hmm. um that's one secondly there's different processes while uh brewing uh of which the most known one is uh, of course the uh, turbid mesh um there's um while doing so and, and that's where there's differences between in lambic brewers, but we still respect the different temperature steps, which today uh, in modern brewing, let's, let's call it like that, and with optimized uh, uh, malts, it is not happening anymore. Everything mm -hmm. is brewed uh, or mashed in at the same temperature level. So these different temperature steps are still important in, uh, in lambic brewing. Um, what is also very typical for lambic brewing is the long boil. Um, typically today you have like between, let's say, half an hour to two hour boils. But in Lambic, so we still boil today for five hours. Uh -huh. um, and there's even historical sources at the beginning uh, of the brewing season. They, uh, they brewed something like what is called a brown Lambic, uh, which is uh, actually a more reduced version of a Lambic brew. And there the boil uh, was more than 18 hours. Wow. Um, and that's something that we, meanwhile, we have already done a couple of times, which gives a completely different beer while basis is the same so that's also a very uh, a very big difference um also we use old hops or hops with a very low uh, alpha so giving a very uh, tiny bitterness um for that as well we're looking at uh, old uh, local varieties like the Quagno and the Grune Bell and Green Bell uh, hops which are naturally very low in alpha acids 
Um, so after the long boil, um, uh, very opposite modern brewing. We are not going to cool down the wort and put our own uh, yeast or lab yeast on it. We are actually going to pour the boiling wort onto cool ships. So it's a very shallow uh, open vessels. And we let the whole wort cool down during the night. Um, during the night, um, there will be a local uh, uh, yeast uh, and flora work onto the, uh, onto the wort. Uh, and other microorganisms as well. Uh, the morning after, we will put the wort onto oak barrels, um, where you have different processes going on. It starts with your typical uh, beer fermentation, because the Saccharomyces cervisae also has a, uh, a wild version. Uh, so it starts to foam, it foams over, and so on and so forth. Uh, when that uh, process stops, we're going to add uh, uh, more wort or lambic, depending on what we have available, to actually close down the whole and close down the whole barrel so that there's no oxygen in the barrel. Um, second process is acidific acidification. So that's a very uh, subtle process, and that's uh, also the most riskful part of the whole uh, process in that sense that uh, there should not be uh, oxygen added. Uh, by the way, no oxygen oxygen, or there should be no risk for uh, oxidization throughout the whole process. Um, otherwise, we're making vinegar instead of a lamp. <laughs> and after a year, you have like a drinkable beer that is completely flat, straight off the barrels um, at four, maybe 5% of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And that's then uh, a lambic. Um, uh, that's a young lambic. So one year, you could actually, it's already considered beer after, let's say, eight months uh, when the acidification is stopped. But again, that really depends on barrel to barrel. That really depends on the time the brew was brewed and so on and so forth. And that's something you cannot uh, tweak or you cannot put in, in a fixed process. That is really up to tasting and and um, yeah, uh, depending on the aroma, depending on the so, and that's the base, that's Lambic. Um, a lot of brewers visiting us, they say like, it's kind of uh, uh, very, uh, uh, how to say, um, boring, because we actually, <laughs> we actually make the same beer every brew day. Yeah. Um, and that's where we beg to defer, because we're working with a lot of uh, raw weed varieties. We're working with a lot of hop varieties so uh, mm -hmm. every day is actually different the same on the cool ship uh, after a cold night uh, let's say freezing night instead of two or three degrees centigrade above zero you have a different volume left even if the whole technical part of the brewing would have been the same so we cannot make the same brew exactly twice that's it's also amazing. one of the yeah it's one of our philosophies that we yeah. don't want to make a standardized lambic that's not possible so um that's lambic, so it's uh, and you can keep the lambic uh, on uh, for two years, three years, four years, five and six years on the barrel. Uh, in the longer run, you also will also have the Brettanomyces that start to come in play. Um, uh, the older lambic will have more complex notes, not only of the Brettanomyces, but also of uh, uh, certain esters that developed over time, and uh, of course also the uh, impact of the oak. Um, a goose is then actually a blend of one, two, and at least three-year-old lambic. Um, 
the young lambic will still have uh, residual sugars from the brew itself, while the old lambic has then those complex notes. Um, the blending part, that is something that technically you cannot learn uh, in a book. It's really mm -hmm. something that is passed on from person to person, from generation to generation. So what will happen once we bottle uh, the whole blend is that the uh, uh, young lambic will continue to ferment in the bottle. Um, after, let's say, at least six months, you normally then have a, a foaming goose because of the continued fermentation, uh, creating additional alcohol and, uh, and uh, CO2 uh, will make that the CO2 cannot escape. Um, uh, like in the barrels, but will actually go into the beer. And then that's where you, you come from a, a, a flat blend to a uh, foaming uh, goose. Um, and then the, you know, the third application is on fruit beers. Um, that is where we take uh, young lambic. Because of COVID, meanwhile, uh, the whole, uh, everything uh, shifted with, uh, with two years, basically. So we are currently using <laughs> two, three, even four-year-old lambic uh, as a basis to Put fruit on, and that's where we uh, actually uh, put the whole fruit. For example, sour cherries, uh, raspberries, uh, peaches. We have done peaches. We can do grapes or grape must or pomas, uh, plums. We put them onto the beer, onto the lambic, and we let it sit for uh, a couple of months. So at least two to let's say even a full year for the local Skybix sour cherries. I will let it macerate. So the lambic will actually start to consume the, uh, the fruit and uh, all the traits of the fruit being sugars, color, uh, flavors, taste, uh, will be transferred from the fruit onto the beer. Um, we macerate very, uh, uh, very dense in that sense that we take for every uh, liter of lambic, we put uh, one kilo or more or less two pounds of fruit. Um, what you get after the maceration period is a very intense uh, fruit lambic. So that is then blended again to come to a certain balance that you want to, to uh, bubble. Um, so those are the three main, let's say, main uh, uh, types of uh, lambic-based beers. It's the straight lambic, it's goose, and then it's fruit lambic. And in between, you have uh, a lot of uh, more subtle variety. You are listening to Trap Brewing Co. Presents the First Time, and this is our interview with Werner von Barbergen. Man, yeah, you're making me want to drink one right now. Um, <laughs> so you said something really interesting in that, which is that you can't teach how to blend. It's palette-based and understanding-based. And one thing that I really loved, again, kind of the, that openness of Armand, is that um, Mikel came on with, he had no previous experience, but Armand recognized that he had an, a fantastic palette. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and it takes time. So uh, just to give you an idea, and, and first of all, uh, the reason why uh, Michael joined Trifontaine or wanted to join was uh, he wanted to work in a family business. The only background he had in beer was from going out and drink 
liking <laughs> uh, and, and loving beer in general. Uh, but he, he never, or he didn't know at that point uh, what Lambic was really about. So mm-hmm. together with Armand and Pure personally, those two was such a beautiful uh, 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 interaction. Um, um, I used to meet them before I joined Trifontaine and I always was so happy for Armand, also the way he talked about Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Armand uh, found a like a, a younger version of himself in Michael. Yeah. The upside or the additional uh, uh, advantage that, that Michael brought along uh, in Trifontaine, Armand sometimes was an artist while Michael was more structured. So that was a very good um, a synergy between, uh, between Armand and Michael. Um, but it took uh, at least a year before Michael actually said like, okay, I know now what the different, uh, let's say, types of Lambic are, what mm-hmm. different nuances are. Uh, and it took another three years. Michael made his first blend without Armand uh, in two, around 2000, mid-2013. Wow, um, what a moment that must have been. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and that's um, because that, that's something Armand didn't talk about much, only when we were the three of us, uh, were the parallels that could be drawn with his father. Um, and yeah, then, then you realize that um, we are uh, not family, but we, there's a, there was and still is a huge connection between the values and or between us as people mm-hmm. because the values that we are driven by and, and, and the background that we share was so strong um and that is now something that michelle also uh is uh, teaching to uh, uh part of the team that is involved in blending so that we can continue to keep that generation thing going uh because it's so important to pass on uh the knowledge that is around and it's something that you cannot write down in a book the only thing that you could do is like okay if you have uh so that's also the only thing that we measure in alambic it's the degrees play-doh to know how uh much sugar there's still um available to know that at least in the bottle it would continue to ferment that's the only thing that we measure we don't measure uh yeast count and so on all the rest is something that you that is not technical it is purely feeling um, mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of time. Yeah. That's incredible. And I, I was actually, you know, I have so many different questions to, to go into, but I was really fascinated by the idea of what um, Aman did with with the kind of handing over to you guys. Like, you know, is that something that you want to carry on? Like recognizing people that maybe have come from different walks of life and uh, found themselves with you to try and, I don't know. It's almost like an heir to the kingdom of, of, of Drifontaine. Like, how do you view that? Um, it's a, a very encompassing question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I really hope, uh, I hope uh, that I, I get somewhere with the answer. Uh, there's so many, ma- there's so many points I can think of. Uh, first of all, I think that the spirit of Drifontaine um, uh, is the, personality and the values and the passion of Armand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that Michel and myself, we talk, uh, we talk about it a lot, that in every decision that we make, uh, that we, we often ask ourselves the question, if we don't have the answer, we often ask ourselves the question, 
what would Armand do? And we have Amazing. actually the answer then. Yeah. Um, and we, the only thing that we can hope is that the openness of Armand that he had towards the, the, the team, that we can continue it. Uh, the only mm-hmm. difference is that Armand didn't have to care about uh, the day-to-day <laughs> management <laughs> of the team. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's the complexity that that we are uh, that we are dealt with, um, which is okay. But um, um, we we are very stubborn. That's true. Um, and stubborn <laughs> is maybe a bit negative, but we are very steadfast. And yeah. what Ar- what Armand has always uh, pushed us for has now translated to a clear vision for the future of the Fontana um, is that we, we would like to to not only uh, remain a reference uh, which is which is thanks to Armand but also uh, make the beer more uh, of a um, or I will put it differently um, everyone's yelling that uh, Lambic beer is a terroir beer and it's tradition and so on and so forth. Uh, but um, it's more difficult to actually carry that out. And I think that the Fontana has, uh, has done that with the whole team. Um, not only by the cereal collective, but also the efforts that we're taking for the, the Skybix Sour Cherries. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that is not a work of uh, one person, but it's the work of a lot of people. Um, so Trifontaine is, is not uh, carried by Michael and myself alone. It's, uh, it's the work of, uh, of 20 people. Um, and, and that is something that we would like to, to continue um, the way that uh, Armand had envisioned it, uh, the way that Michael and myself have, uh, have set up. Um, and, and try to convince consumers as well that uh, especially craft beer is not about how much you drink especially um, uh, why you drink it for. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and that is something that we see as the next step for craft is that in a hugely globalized uh, and, and industrialized um, uh, farming uh, uh, model and malting model that we actually have guts to go back to local farmers and local maltsters to uh to get the yeah how, how to say to get the local culture back because everybody's thinking yeah i'm supporting my local brewer mm-hmm. which is true but the whole system behind it um agricultural and malting uh model it's all industrialized and that yeah. is not that's not local at all and it used to be the standard like before you had the baker the miller and the farmer working together to actually create something flavorful um so that's what we hope for for the future and that's something that the fontana has in, has engaged into to uh to not only set up that has been set up five years ago uh but to continue for the very long future that we can build a sustainable uh, model again with local farmers um and and local monsters that's incredible yeah and i mean like i said the, the these these beers when i when i drink them or try them the, the they they are stories they tell there's so much that goes into them and and you know the process and the people and the climate and all of these things they they that's what brings me the greatest joy when i when i drink 
because like this is 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 that level of yeah, I want to say humanity, but I don't know, like the natural world being such an integral part of of it as a as a product. Um, yeah, it was. Again, I was listening to an interview with Aman, and and there was a point. So you said earlier, was there fourteen Lamic producers in Brussels, and then it got down to was it two or three? Uh, in Basel, fourteen. In, in Basel, Basel, sorry, so, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, we're talking about a hundred years ago. There yeah. were more than ninety nine zero uh, lambic breweries and almost three hundred blenderies. Wow! Um, but yeah, blendery could be a little bar making their own bottles of goose uh, or, or having some lambic in the cellar. So it was a uh, very widespread. Always yeah. in Brussels, uh, Valley of the Seine, so southwest and by um, so it's a very small region. But uh, the beer used to uh, used to be like a uh, let's say economic uh, stronghold for the whole region, and with that also the farming around it. Um, um, so uh, because of the um, uh, introduction of industrialized lagers, um, also the uh, uh, the motors that were necessary to cool down the tap lines for uh, uh, serving those taps or serving those uh, lagers. They also uh, warmed up the goose balls in the cellars, so a lot of goose balls exploded in the cellars. Oh the wow! So um, then, after the Second World War, there was a golden period. So the uh, uh, the buying power of people increased. So instead of beer, they started to drink French wine on on restaurants and in bars, uh, and that made that the whole uh, culture of lambic actually plummeted. Um, and then I have to think, I think mid-90s on the all-time low of Lambic, there were only, if I'm not mistaken, only a handful real traditional ones. Wow. About to come, Hanses, Trifontaine. So it's an, it's an absolute demise of a, yeah, it's a demise of a, of a product almost, almost to extinction. And especially a traditional one because um, yeah. in those days you had 13 or 12 in total, but that included Bellevue, Mosebit, Lindemans and so on, so which was also or which is still considered lambic, but purely traditionally, at one time you only had not even one handful left. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, he said re- something really interesting as well, which was, Aman said it was the the introduction of sugar, which uh, was yeah, a really yeah, yeah, yeah. it was yeah. really fascinating. Like it kind of just like rocked me. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and uh, also, uh, um, let's say, um, uh, call it uh, not the real sugars, but the uh, sugars that you add that don't ferment. Uh, yeah. So more, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, lab sugars. Um, yeah. That's one thing. I and it's it's still ruling the the lambic market, sort of say, yeah? as a as a category lambic beer in the whole uh, beer puddle. It's it's very 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 small, but within the lambic community. It's all, uh, um, there's a huge unbalance between really traditional Lambic and, and the very sweet ones. Um, just as an anecdote, I, I read a couple of weeks ago, there was a discussion going on, on on the social media and someone said like, luckily back in the old days, about the 70s and the 80s, we had the sweetened Lambic beers so that the traditional ones could survive because 95% of the volume was sweetened back in those days. Wow. I, replied to that person i said um just i do not want to burst your your balloon or burst your bubble but 
actually still today, 95% of the Lambic beers out there are sweetened ones. No if way. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a huge discussion point, of course. Where do you put your flag of tradition? It's, it's also one that we are uh, uh, having uh, regular talks about, like um, uh, they're already in the mid 40s, there was a big discussion on what the noblest lambic beer was. Um, and yeah, a lot of writers, a lot of cultural people debating on, on what the real tradition was of, of lambic. And already in the 50s and the 60s, there was sweetened creek and sweetened goose and st- stabilizing or stabilized lambic beers. That's so, uh, so, so interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you so much for doing this, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know you're exceptionally busy, and you've you've carved out some time to do this. There's, I've still got pages of notes that we we haven't even touched on that I would want to get through. But I guess the sense of it is just the thing that's really resonating with me, and I think probably resonates with the drinker as well. Is just the connection of Aman to products, but to you guys as well, and and the way that you carry that kind of spirit forward, and I. Is there still, uh, are there still beers that in in your barrel store that that Aman produced? Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have something that we call a um, we have a cavo, small one. Yeah. So Armand, what he actually did, and he started with that end of the nineties of every, uh, not every blend that he made, but while tasting when there was an exceptional blend, he always put aside uh, a few containers with bottles. Um, we continue to do so. Uh, and actually, we have more for the moment. I should I should uh, have the inventory uh, somewhere in the next, <laughs> deep down in Excel. Uh, but from, uh, from uh, I think we have about 150,000 bottles. Wow. I just, I just wondered like over the years. Yeah. The romance in me, just like the feeling of, you know, I guess when you drink that beer for you yourself, it's like the feeling of connection to, to Aman. Uh, absolutely. And that's the reason why we only do it on set moments. That we mm-hmm. can share them with the team. Um, um, even more so I have my personal seller. I'm going to move it into uh, the Cavo here. <laughs> so yeah, because that that's, it's, um, and that's my personal experience. It's the, the, um, uh, um, uh, how do you say it? In, uh, in Dutch, it's the curse. It's it's the nice thing of having a cellar is that you can accumulate <laughs> you can accumulate bottles and let them sit and age. Yeah. The curse of a cellar is the fact that before opening a bottle, you would like to have the 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 the, the uh, right people around the table because you're not going to drink that alone. Like yes. uh, a ten year or fifteen or twenty year old bottle of this, you don't drink it alone. You want no. to share it. And those moments while you're working uh, harder and harder. <laughs> those moments are fewer and fewer so um that's the reason why i want to move them up here just to open those bottles with the with the team or with with friends from uh from the beer world um, that sounds amazing yeah that yeah and it's also one of those values of, of armand he was i can oh stefan i can really tell you i can still remember all of the moments that after meetings 
Armand, he says like, and now we're going to drink. He comes up. He also had his own cellar in his house. He comes up with like very old bottles. And I have been on the other side of the spectrum being a beer aficionado. Still am today, <laughs> but it's it's a whole other world if you're actually in it. Uh, and he digs up bottles that you say like, I have I have been dying to try this beer for 15 years. And Armand, he just digs one up and he shares. And it's absolutely uh, one of the best beers I ever tasted in my life. Incredible. It's not only the beer, but also the moment. So, uh, well, that's and it. And I think be, uh, dearly missed. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the, I guess that's the heart of it with beers like you, you've kind of alluded to is just, it's almost a capturing of a moment, isn't it? But it's not just the moment of production in the mall, the, not, the moment that it was, put in a cool shape but it's the moment in which you actually consume it together and the people that you're with and that that should be what a good beer is about eh? absolutely absolutely um when i again i could carry on talking to you for for many more hours and i hope that um we get to do this in person one day and and I, and maybe i come visit you guys or something but i just wanted to say a massive thank you for, for doing this and for sharing your stories of our man as well, who's such a integral part of, of the beer scene as a whole, you know, um, not just in the Lambic um, sense, but in, in the greater sense. Um, so yeah, thank you. And I, I imagine, you know, generally I ask what, what that last beer would be if you had one last beer to drink, but I can almost see you just back on the balcony at Drefontaine getting, getting a goose. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that would be it. <laughs> the full circle. The full circle. Yeah. Um, okay, well, thanks so much for doing this, mate, um, and sparing the time. I, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to, to meeting in person one day soon. And that's it. Another episode done. I hope you enjoyed that one. That was a beautiful conversation and a real pleasure to be a part of. Um, thanks so much to Werner for, for sitting down with me and spending the time and sharing the story of uh, Drew Fontaine, which is just an incredible one. And I hope to get out there one day and visit for, for a beer. Um, a massive thanks to Tom Coucher, as always, for producing this episode. Uh, thanks so much to everyone for listening. And if you want to share it, if you want to review it, that's always a, a super helpful thing. Um, to kind of push this into new ears. So, thanks so much. You are listening to Trap Brewing Co. presents the first time, and as ever, stay thirsty.